This episode of The Smoke Pit is brought to you by Telemine, providing mental health services for military, veterans, and their families. Check them out at telemine.com. That is T-E-L-E-M-Y-N-D.com. Welcome to The Smoke Pit. Joining us today, Medal of Honor recipient, Master Sergeant Earl Plumley. But you insisted in our pre-interview that I just call you Earl. So how are you doing today, Earl? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. Uh, so you you had a, a very illustrious uh, military career, which kind of culminated with um, you being a, an Army Green Beret. And so I, I got to ask you, many military oaths say that we're not supposed to lie, cheat, or steal, but nearly our entire warfare doctrine is based on the concept of deceiving our enemy. Well, I try not to lie, cheat, or steal. Uh, <laughs> as, you know, especially like the, you know, the Afghan police and, and commandos, you know, I you know, maybe do a lie through omission. Um, and then I always, uh, at the end of it, they're like, hey, how come you can tell us you were doing something last night? And I would be very, you know, I'm like, I didn't tell you because uh, when I tell you stuff, you know, I pick up phone calls coming from your guys uh, <laughs> warning the Taliban. So I know that not all of your guys are down for the fight. Yeah. And then my other, you know, if it's a military necessity, you know, my big thing is, how, you know, if you're in a ambiguous situation. Um, my big one was, um, for, for personal gain. Like, are you, are you yeah. lie, lie cheating or stealing and, and coming ahead personally? Well, then you're, you're probably, you're probably dancing in the danger zone. Yeah. I think maybe the caveat, uh, should have that, uh, to that, uh, sentiment should be to anybody on our side. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anybody well, not I, on our side, explicitly deceive them. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I, I, uh. I have lied to a ton of, um, you know, army air force personnel. Like <laughs> I, I need this. It's very important. The mission's tonight. And, yeah. uh, like, Oh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, kind I, of like when, uh, when uh, my friends tell me that their kids are like, dad, I need this graphic card, uh, to do my homework. And they're right. like, really the one that's specifically required to run cyberpunk. Yeah. Like, That's you, the one you need for your homework. Like, yes, it is homework mission critical. Yeah, I need I need this uh, this shipping container stat. Like, what's in it? Mattresses. <laughs> I've got a whole rucksack full of like yeah. Otis Spunkmeyer muffins. Right. If I have to sleep on plywood again, the mission could fail. <laughs> well, you know, as um as we we try to navigate the the differences between um you know the the way that things used to be and the way that things are, um. You know, we, we find ourselves asking, uh, you know, what the, the future of our military is going to look like. And I, I wanted to know your personal insights. What, uh, what advice do you have for the next generation of warfighters? I think the, the you know, even though the, the technology is training um, and the training is changing uh, almost, you know, every year it's slightly different. Uh, the, the same thing, the same things are, are, are true. You know, uh, train how you fight, train aggressively. And, uh, you know, I, I think that was a big shock to me how easy combat actually was when mm -hmm. I finally got there. And uh, that's how you want to get to combat. Um, you want to get there um, so well trained that you're kind of shocked by um, how easy it is to do. And yeah. so even though, you know, the guys are, you know, training on things I never even would thought necessary, you know, like when I was in the infantry, you dug a hole. Uh, put up your, you put up your sector stakes and then you, you, you did your, uh, you know, look around, smell around, listen around. Mm -hmm. And now 
any unit that's not monitoring the RF, you know, the RF spectrum uh, isn't really on guard. And I never would have thought I would have to put up antennas to, um, you know, detect drones and, and measure for oh, yeah. um, other um, goings on in the, uh, the, the, the radio magnetic spectrum. And I'm, I'm like, it's neat. Uh, it's a new thing and they have to get good at it. Yeah. It's, um, I, I don't know about you, but when I first joined, it's like, you gotta, you got you dig a couple holes, one for pooping, one for sleeping <laughs> right? and one in case things go bad. So you can fall back to that one. Yeah. And so it's pretty neat. Uh, and the, the, the difference now. So, yeah. so now most bases, you can't dig a hole and poop in it. So, so a lot of soldiers have never done that. <laughs> and when you go to the field, there's a porta potty and it's kind of an admin thing, you know, you, yeah. you go to the bathroom there and then, uh, or same. the multi, the multi-use room as, yeah. uh, the multi-use you use for napping or, or other various activities. Yeah. And then, and then now the same kid that doesn't know how to go to the bathroom in the field has a computer in his foxhole and he's coding, um, his, uh, detection equipment. I'm like, well, okay. I guess I'll dig the hole then. <laughs> yeah, like you're putting on your face paint and uh, you know, oiling your your uh, your K bar, and they're like, "What are you doing?" Like, "Oh, we're gonna go on this reconnaissance patrol." He's like, "No, we're good. I, I sent a drone out. Yeah. I laser the target. I got yeah. uh, time yeah. on target artillery strike in thirty seconds." Yeah, yeah, it's all done. Like, oh, it's well, all done. Okay. <laughs> would you like an? Would you like a muffin? But uh, <laughs> we got a whole crate of these. You know, I think you know every generation always complains about the the up and coming one. You know, when I came yeah. in. And, you know, back, you know, back in the old days, you know, we were hard and uh, everybody says that. And I think it's, uh, uh, you know, everybody's always worried uh, about this, these new generation coming in because they're, they're thought of as soft and, and, and to some aspect they are physically, you know, it takes us a lot longer to get a guy fit for combat. But I think that the most important thing is the the will to to come and get ready that they, they have it you know the, the younger generation still has it um they still have uh that drive they just you know they grew up playing inside so you you got to be gentle with them for for six months or a year before you start really uh hammering on that metal because they'll break yeah we um we we did an article where now this isn't a monolith for you know all generations so if you're a brand new 18 year old hard charger who just joined, you know, please don't send me an angry message. But uh, we did an article where there was a study that re was released that said because of the the lack of the the physical activity that there was a portion of the, the youth whose bones just weren't as dense. Well, that's, that's, uh, no, that's, that's not even, that's a fact. We know that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I noticed it a lot um, coming through as an 18 x-ray in the Q course was the first time I really got exposed to this, this uh, new generation that didn't have the same bone density. <laughs> and, uh, and it, uh, you know, I, I got hurt and uh, the PA had the, he had the x-rays up. He's like, you want to see something weird? Um, you know, look at the difference between you and this kid. And he's like, and this, this kid's uh, he's like 22, 23 years old. He's like, physically he's, he looks like a beast, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, but you put our x-rays up, and it, it, the contrast was, was stark. Um, my bone density was like 300% heavier than his. It was, it was crazy. Literally and, built different. Yeah. As the youth would say. So, uh, and, and, but we know they can, they gain bone density, but the, the old yeah. model of training where you come into boot camp, you know, and two, three minutes later, 
your, your fit and we start driving on doesn't really work anymore because we know it takes six months to a year um, for, for that bone density to catch up to that physical activity. And, uh, and that's why, you know, one of my things was our biggest injury was long bone injuries. So like femurs, so these, these guys will come out, they get fit and they would hike until their femur snapped. Oh, wow. So that's why I was like, well, that's cool that he could do that. You know, that probably hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was like, if we can get them fit, the, the next generation, there's plenty of, of guys that have the drive that we're looking for. They just, you know, boot camp needs to be three, four months long before we turn them loose into, you know, what we would call the fleet. Yeah. Uh, because if you take somebody like that and throw them on like a McCree hike, and have, you know, here's a 50 cal receiver. Why don't you go walk 30 miles? <laughs> um, probably going to uh, to the to the force's detriment. We're going to break that kid early, and, and and we might not get him back. Yeah. So when we uh, we look at uh, the experience of the newer generation versus um, ours, where you you had us where you came in, and then immediately you might be deploying um, shortly after hitting the fleet. And now that things are different, the way that we handle technology and injuries. So just kind of like as a leader, how would you handle the the mentality of being stagnant among your troops uh, who have never had that combat deployment environment where they get there and they're put through all these rigors, they may suffer the injuries, they have to go through all these challenges, but there's not that like payoff at the end, which would be a combat deployment with your unit. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, I identify with, I, I'm a pre nine 11 guy. So, mm. you know, what was I, what was I getting ready for? Um, and, and you know, it was the Russian boogeyman, the Chinese boogeyman. Um, and you know, that was my, my thing was we, we had to stay strong as a deterrent. Um, and while not as exciting or, or glamorous as, as combat, it's, it's, um, you know, arguably probably be more important to, to be that force and readiness to, to deter a war. Um, cause it, it's easy to go out there and get shot. It's, I think it's harder to, uh, stay fit to fight, um, with no battle on the, on the, you know, looming. And, uh, and I had a, you know, I had a, uh, Vietnam Marine kind of tell me the same thing. He was really impressed with what we were doing. Um, cause he's like, yeah, anybody can take it, uh, take it, uh, seriously when it's real and you might die. Yeah. He was pretty impressed with the, um, the discipline that my infantry battalion was displaying when it was just training. Like nobody, yeah. nobody was going to die other than through a freak accident. Um, but you know, the, the guys are doing the right thing. Um, digging, you know, real fighting holes, putting cami paint on, um, without being just absolutely, you know, beat with a bull whip. Um, and, uh, and I made me proud. I was like, Oh, cool. This is, I'm in an elite unit. Yeah. And so, we, uh, we, we transitioned from that, that readiness portion, and I came in right after that. I went to boot camp in, in 2004, so we had already had maybe you know two, three yeah. years worth of, um, of experience. Some of uh, my school of infantry instructors actually had tours to Afghanistan and Haiti, which I think a lot of people forget that we, yeah. we sent Haiti uh, Marines down there. No, that was the, um, that was, yeah, the, the Haiti guys that were yeah. before the world they got started. That was the, all the, that was all the stories you heard. Yeah. And so um, what do you think we did well in the, uh, the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism, and what do you think we could have done better? Uh, well, what we did well was obviously um, deploy just a ridiculous amount. Um, 
that had never really been done. You look at the amount of combat time uh, the GWAT veterans have. It's just, it's astounding, you know. A lot of these guys, even though it wasn't uh, continuous, uh, a lot of them have more combat time than like a World War II veteran, which was the last big hump. Yeah. Um, well, to be fair, a lot of them showed up, and it's just like as soon as they landed, it's like, ah, my knee, and they got shot yeah. or shrapnel. It's like, all right, back home. Back, back home. But, <laughs> you uh, have 23 seconds of combat experience. And I think that's something we learned as an organization also is, um, you know, in World War II, you got on a boat, you, you sailed all the way across an ocean, and then you went somewhere and waited, and uh, to, you walked or, or trucked to the battlefield. And during GWAT, uh, we had a smaller, more nimble military, which was neat. Um, but the, the tip of that chisel just got absolutely, uh, hammered over and over again. Um, cause we were able to get to the fight. We had a smaller force and, but when you look down there, you know, that, that 19, 20 year old, um, private is just, he's just moving about Iraq or Afghanistan going from fight to fight to fight, uh, keeping the country together. And, uh, which was neat. We did that really well. Um, yeah. all of our adversaries, saw how we moved about the, the planet and then moved about the, the battlefield and it, it scared the hell out of them. And it still does. Yeah. Yeah. What I we think that's do a, well I'm was, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. But what we didn't do well was, uh, kind of think long term. If we send a, if we send a 19, 20 year old kid to combat, um, for five years, you know, six years, what does that look like as a 30 year old? Uh, mentally and physically. So we didn't really anticipate uh, chewing the force up like we did. And, uh, and you see that, you know, they, they had that thing in Congress where they were going to um, means test and cut veterans benefits because they just didn't know what was going on. They had this huge ballooning of, of uh, benefits. And then all of us on the ground were like, yeah, you, you sent us to war for, for 20 years. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to end up with a ballooning in, in uh, benefits. Uh, being paid out because you know that you you sent a kid um, to Iraq five or six times and he's been you know shot and blown up and uh, and he survived you know the the medical advancements that we had on the, the golden hour yeah on the battlefield we had a huge amount of veterans that didn't die on the battlefield they got to come home um, and now yeah. they have injuries that are going to be lifelong injuries that need treatment so that that's something we didn't do good and, and just uh, didn't, you know, didn't really think about that. I don't think just like yeah. our equipment, you know, we, we chewed through all of our Humvees and chewed through all of our tanks and uh, Congress is like, Hey, you said this was, we bought this and you said it was going to, it was going to last, you know, 30, 40 years, but now you're saying you need new ones. I'm like, yeah, it, it lasted, it would last 30, 40 years in you know, peacetime, in peacetime sitting in the motor pool. But, uh, uh, that's not what we did uh, with it. It's been, it's got, you know, 200% of the hours and miles <laughs> that it, it was designed for on it, driving back and forth uh, outside the green zone in Baghdad. Not to mention uh, with the upgrades and the up armor packages and, you know, the oh, various yeah. counter ID those, systems. Just, I'm writing those Humvees off. I mean, if you've ever seen yeah. uh, a Humvee that's been in Iraq with the up armor package on it, like four years later. Transmission just shot. Transmission shot, the the frames uh, hogged out and bowed out. Um, every time you hit the brakes and the you know the truck, the whole thing lurches forward three inches on the <laughs> on the frame. Like, yeah, yeah, we, we we broke those. Yeah, and I I, I agree with um, with what you're saying. I think what we did really well is we decimated the enemy. You know, we 
um, you know, we only took a handful of, of casualties and you know, and that's, you know, saying that with, um, with all deference, you know, but if you look at our past conflicts, if you were to say America's going to be an armed conflict for 20 years and they're only going to have 5,000, uh, killed in action like that, that is very impressive. Yeah. I mean, literally, and especially fighting the type of war we were fighting where, um, you know, the guys on the ground are just, you know, finding landmines and landmines and IEDs with their legs. Um, the, the amount of casualties we took, um, was astoundingly low. Uh, you, you look at the, the Russians and Ukrainians, it's a, it's a freaking bloodbath over there. Yeah. And so I, I think that we did that extremely well. We adapted very well. Um, we were able to dominate our, our battle spaces, our, our home front was, uh, technology and development was fantastic. You look at the, uh, the gear that, um, they were sent into the invasion and you look at, you know, the gear that they had, yeah. um, recently and yeah, just I like, think, uh, you know, I, I spent my whole time trying to get to Iraq and I, I didn't get there till 2005, but by the time I got there, the, uh, all the up armored stuff was, was everywhere. Uh, the counter ID equipment was, was on the ground, uh, pretty common and yeah and so you know while i remember guys just howling on the ground the fact that we completely analyzed and countered a threat um in like 24 months is pretty cool yeah we uh we did a fantastic job with that you mentioned the golden hour uh you know shout out to tricky dust off pedro you know all the all the fly boys and and uh and gals and then their maintenance crews you know I, I always tell, I always told the the boots that it's just like, look, I get it. Like the the last hundred yards of any conflict will always belong to the infantry, but at the end of the day, like you are as deadly and as efficient as you are because you have that supporting factor. When you get hit, you know a bird's coming in. When you call for close air support, you know um, a fast mover's coming in. Um, and it, it, it lets us be bold on the battlefield. I, yeah, because I uh, uh, you know, I you talk to a Vietnam vet if if you weren't urgent surgical like you might stay all night with your unit. Like yeah. you'd sit, you might sit in a, uh, a triage area, but I, I've talked to multiple uh, Vietnam vets that got shot. It just wasn't that serious. So, you know, they stayed or sometimes moved to the next, uh, objective and then got medevaced. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in GWAT, if you had a bullet hole in you, even if it was obviously superficial, like a helicopter came and got you. Or at the very least, like um, uh, some tracks or some Humvees came and yeah. picked you up and took you to the nearest uh, battalion aid station or, or whatever the case may be, uh, shock trauma platoon. And so, you know, I think we did that fantastic. And one of the things that I think that we did poorly was we did not listen to the, the guys and gals on the ground. Because, you know, like you have the big blue arrow concept, you have strategic, tactical, operational, yeah. the, the various levels of, of conflict. And... When you have the guys and the gals on the ground saying like, hey, you know, this Afghan army unit is corrupt or this. Yeah, uh, yeah this, this is not this is not a thing. Like, well, this informant is playing both sides yeah. and they're just like, oh, is that is that cool? Hey, maybe if we just give him another 200 grand, it'll change their loyalty, you know? Right now. Yeah, you can't buy that. And so I, I've said this before. It's just like, how does America never lose a major battle in vietnam nor afghanistan but we end up uh unceremoniously leaving both conflicts so i because yeah, it I wasn't think, guys like you and i that were responsible for that you know i you know I, I talk about this all the time um 
I we went to Afghanistan to kill Bin Laden, and then the day we killed Bin Laden, you know, the Afghans should have got out of bed and been like, "Where the where the Americans go?" Well, we left. <laughs> um, and uh, it, yeah, everybody on the ground. Um, while you know, I did not want to see Afghanistan fall apart, hoping for the best. You know, my my Afghans always felt bad killing the Taliban because of they were really good Muslims. And, uh, you know, if you think the other guy's the good guy, like <laughs> this, this government's probably not going to work that great. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that leads me into a, a very interesting, uh, situation that we're currently dealing with. You know, the, the Pentagon claims that the Taliban has killed the ISIS K leader responsible for the uh, Kabul bombings during the evacuation. Um, I mean that, first of all, that's a lot to process right there. Um, but then secondly, like, you know, you kind of think about this from a, a larger historical uh, concept, like America is very good at turning former uh, enemies into allies, which, you know, you see with England, Germany, Japan, and, you know, so many other countries that, you know, we've had armed conflict with before. Do you ever see Taliban troops doing joint missions with American operators against a common foe? I think maybe in the future we could we could align uh interests to tolerate each other. I don't think we'll be doing joint operations with them. Um, I, I think uh, at the strategic level, you could maybe you could have a couple guys understand that we're trying to do the same thing. Um, but down at the, the rank and file of the Taliban, I don't think are ever going to tolerate uh, uh, serving with a American or, or coalition partners. Yeah. Um, I think we're, let's we're, just say we're too far off on, on what we what yeah. we can believe and so we might be able to coordinate something um but yeah we're not getting on the same birds we're not <laughs> you know we're not we're not walking to, to the objective together I, I just don't see that happening uh even in the far off future that, that makes sense and i i completely understand where you're coming from it's just kind of a neat concept to think maybe not needs the right word but imagine this right um you know, we, we get a, a communi communications, right? And they're like, look, you guys know that the Taliban and ISIS-K hate each other. You know, like that. That's one of those things like the enemy of my enemy is yeah. my friend type thing when they're like, look, we have a good idea of where this dude is. We know you hate him too. Give us some ISR assets. You can put a couple operators on our on our stick. Uh, they can be in the stack. And, you know, we promise them safe passage. You know, you, you got to lift this one sanction or give us some aid or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's a win for you. It's a win for us. And, you know, we can let bygones be bygones. Like, might, I really feel there. like at some point in time, we might get there. Uh, maybe. I think the I think the uh, the big impediment to that is uh, the American people also are going to be like, what <laughs> are we doing? <laughs> Um, with these guys again, um, yeah. so I could see like the intel sharing. Sure, that make that makes sense. If we if we find a guy and we're like, hey, um, and I, hopefully if one thing we've gained uh, from the Taliban is, hey, you know, don't let a terrorist organization conduct um, worldwide or external attacks out of your country. Yeah, um, the Taliban always had the option to. Uh, push Al Qaeda out of their country, not grant them safe uh, haven, uh, turn them over to us, kill them. They had a thousand options on the table, mm -hmm. and I I don't know why they chose the one that they did. And a lot of people don't know this. You know, the Taliban had a small civil war 
um, in the early days of Afghanistan because half the Taliban was like, why did we, you know, we had this Islamic paradise of Afghanistan and we gave it up so that Osama bin Laden can, can harass uh, people living in New York because he doesn't like what the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is doing. So for your average Afghani, he's like, this is pretty far yeah. out of my wheelhouse. Like where's the song? I'll, I'll drag us. I'm down to the bird and throw him on there. <laughs> Give us our country back. So a lot of them, yeah. um, almost as convoluted as world war one, you know? Yeah. They're really yeah, understand some... <laughs> why they gave up, uh, all of Afghanistan to protect Osama bin Laden. So it wasn't, um, that popular, uh, across the board. Um, and, um, I think, you know, I hope organizationally that that's the lesson they learned. Like if you, if you don't want Americans in your country, then, you know, don't bother, uh, American interests because, you know, historically we will show up and tear your, tear your uh, playground up. We will spend $2 trillion erasing a generation. Yep. And, and yeah. uh, that's, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that it, it came to that because, you know, at, at at the end of the day, like I, I had some very, some very good experiences in the Middle East. I met some amazing people. We shared some real human connection moments. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions of the GWAT is that, you know, we were just kind of like uh, stone cold all the time when routinely I would see Marines put their, their lives at risk to try to save civilians or shield them or, um, do so by omission like they're not going to fire on a compound because they're unsure if they're civilians and it wasn't because they were afraid of RO, uh, ROEs and stuff like that it was because they were afraid of looking in the mirror and yeah. seeing somebody who didn't try their best I, I um, no I fully agree and I, I think that's one of the reasons um, that we were and I hazard to use this one but as successful as you as we were um, you know you're the, uh, the insurgencies while detrimental um, you didn't, you didn't see a mass of, of people coming out, um, and, and, uh, to fight the Marines and, and while you would have some trouble, some rabble rousers, um, you know, you never, you never saw like an entire village come out and just throw rocks at the Marines, um, yeah. like things like you, that you see in Palestine. Um, you just, you never saw that cause your average American is a, is a pretty good dude, you know, uh, like. If, if they if they have kids trying to run off the battlefield like you'd see I've seen a hundred times you can't get US troops to shoot uh, at the enemy uh, if there's if there's civilians in the way they'll just ride it out and, and yeah. um, take that chance of getting shot because you know uh, the, the our moral and ethical code doesn't really allow us to do that and I think that's that's uh that's always been really surprising for our our partners and our foes yeah like why don't they why aren't they blowing and like blowing up the village? They could kill all our men. You're like, we, we don't really do that ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's weird. What a lost opportunity. <laughs> and one right. thing that I noticed about, uh, that was a bit different from the, the units that I served in with some of the partner units and partner nations is that we, uh, we weren't the type that if we got like one pop shot round, we would just ammo dump in that general direction. Yeah. The, the Iraqi, uh, starburst. <laughs> yeah like we get one pop shot and then you know the afghan soldier or iraq soldier or partner nation or you know even some regards like a reserve unit or something like that and they would just ammo dump 
like three mags into the tree line or into the side of a building. Yeah, and it's just all, like, bro, what are you shooting at? RPGs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of people may not know this, but you actually served in the Oklahoma National Guard and the U.S. Marine Corps before transitioning to the Army. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking the adventurous path through my career, <laughs> finding finding what I like. Yeah, taking the uh, taking the scenic route. Uh, yeah. So, what would you say are the the main differences uh, between the organizations, and what would you say the biggest similarities are? I think. Well, I'll start with the similarities. You know, they're they're all soldiers. They you know they. Uh, assuming different amounts, different amounts of risk and adventure, you know, so your, your, uh, your infantry Marine on active duty obviously is, is, uh, taking it a lot more seriously than, uh, Oklahoma national guardsmen, but you know, they're, they're all putting the uniform on, they're all taking that oath, oath to support and defend the constitution and, and, uh, you know, assuming that risk to guarantee the, the safety of the country. They're, they're all doing that. Um, I think differences, obviously professionalism. Um, I think I mean, which readily apparent, but which uh, comes to some detriment, you know, Marines <laughs> are, the, are a cult uh, of professionalism and it that leads, to some, it leads to some inflexibility and uh, yeah, a little I, NCO sword paper cutter uh, letter yeah. opener right here. It is a cult. It is a cult. Uh, and then the national guard um, is always to me been like this um, probably closest thing to like a, a special forces uh, unit because you you have a unit and they're truck drivers or they're you know, <laughs> a laundry unit. That's, that's what they, that's what their job is. They went to school to, to do laundry and combat. And then uh, you come in and they, the broken down generator that the Iraqis left is running. It's, it's hooked back up and all their power works and they've got running water that's a pretty neat unit and, yeah. and every national guard unit that I've, I've ever interacted with the first thing you got to do is find out what their real job is when they're not <laughs> wearing their uniform because that's how they spend 90 percent of their time oh fair and, uh, so you, uh, i always thought national guard units were really neat because there there is just so many unique skills uh, uh in a national guard unit yeah, I think it's also true of the people who are like uh, EMTs and work in ERs and their civilian job, and you know yeah. they you know have have seen ten times more blood and guts than your average corpsman or medic. Uh, but yeah. you know if you if you were to look at face value, you would think like, oh, I want the corpsman or I want the medic, you know, working on me. Yeah, you know, He's versus this. <laughs> yeah, versus this generator mechanic. Oh, who by the way is an EMT or an ER tech yeah. or a paramedic in their real job and they've seen 10 times more blood and guts right but uh that's that's the big difference i i think national guardians are just really neat uh when they're deployed because you'll you can you know, there's always just a, a a huge amount of of untapped skill that's just floating around out there yeah and so you um you really took the long way around uh you went through the the marine corps reconnaissance pipeline and marine recon is is you know fabled uh, for being, uh, as Generation Kill would say, a, a Ferrari that they uh, they put into a destruction derby. <laughs> yep. And then from there, you transition to the uh, the Army Special Forces community. So, same question for you: What would you would you find as similarities and differences between the the Marine and the Army um, Special Operations community? Well, so the you know, I came in. Um, 
you know, left my Ferrari, if you will. Um, I think the big <laughs> one is even though the reconnaissance um, units in the Marine Corps, an elite unit, elite formation, um, compared to special forces, they're still, they're narrow focused on a, a, a conventional battlefield. Um, and, you know, no, no recon Marine wants to be con- uh, referred to as conventional, but but they are. That's you know, they even the force reconnaissance companies back in the day, um, you know, with the limited scale raids, neat work. Uh, only is it is it called special uh, in the Marine Corps? Yeah. Um, and then when I, I came to came to special forces, um, the the list of tasks and type of work you're expected to be proficient at is crazy. And, uh, you know, and I, I liken it to a, a day deployed, um, as a green beret, you, you might start the morning off in a suit, um, drive somewhere in uh, jeans and, and finish the day in, in multi-cam patrolling. And yeah. I don't think, I don't think you really find that anywhere else. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you look at the Marine rec- uh, reconnaissance recruiting posters and it's the guy with the face paint, you know, the K bar yep. and the rope. Yep. And so it's just like you start the morning, you know, waiting, uh, just you know, in your fins, observing a, a target, you end the day in your fins, observing a target. Right. But I think that that's the biggest difference is the, uh, um, what they do masters of it. Right. Like yeah. if, uh, if you, if you need that type of work done, that's the guys that you want that, that recon, uh, platoon yeah. or, or force team. Um, but if you want to put somebody on the ground and, and have them, not just kill the enemy, uh, you know, train up, train up a force to fill that vacuum when you're gone, um, deal with the mayor and keep the city running, right. Uh, <laughs> deal with the CIA, uh, and support, uh, whatever they've got going on. Yeah, you don't want to let the Marines near the mayor's wife. Just right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why, you know, you put an ODA in a uh, embassy, like, yeah, they're going to do something weird that you'll have to talk about, but, uh, <laughs> Everybody will kind of think it's funny. You you put a Marine platoon in an embassy, you know, that's just to sit around and wait for the disaster that's about to unfold. Yeah, we just had um, uh, Thorny from Super Troopers on a couple episodes ago, and a quote from that movie, it's like, our shenanigans are cheeky <laughs> and fun. fun. Yours are just cruel. <laughs> yeah, that's like, uh, yeah, this, this type of stuff that, uh, um, that Marines get involved in when they're bored is, you're just like, how? How did that happen? Well, <laughs> it's a long story. We'll start with the MREs relate. <laughs> oh, so when you um when uh when when you look uh back on your your time in the uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, is there anything that uh, that you wish that you saw more of in the Army, or is there anything that you wish that you saw more in your Marine Corps oh. career that you saw in, in the Army? So you know the. the um, the Marine Corps is just such an elite organization. And you know what I, I love about Marines is um, they take everything uh, so, so seriously. Um, and, you know, if, if you tell the Marines, uh, you know, even if it's I got one Lance Corporal, I'm like, hey, we're, we're leaving tomorrow at eight, have all your stuff ready. You know, at, at seven, that Marine's ready. And he's got everything that you need. And uh, if you tell him to do something, um, you need to check on him because if he if he hits any impediments, he's just gonna be grinding trying to get it done. 
Yeah. Uh, and you need to like, hey, the investment's over. I don't want you to do that anymore. It's not worth it. Uh, or this they, juice is more worth the squeeze over yeah, here. The Marines don't analyze whether the juice is worth the squeeze. If you told them to squeeze, they're out there with a sledgehammer <laughs> looking for the juice. <laughs> and so I'm, uh, I'm sure in your career, you probably had a, a lot of people find out that, you know, you were Force Recon, that you were, you know, Army SF. And, yeah. you know, they, they try to do the, the, the posturing thing, like, oh, well, I could have, or I would have, or I almost. My friend, let me tell you about how I failed the Marine Reconnaissance NDOC. All right. Let me tell you about one oh, of okay. the biggest failures of my life. Uh, so I'm in school of infantry and they're like, Hey, sharp, you got a high enough GT score. Uh, you got a high enough, um, PT score. Uh, we want you to try out for the end doc. I was like, Oh, cool. me? Like, Ooh, <laughs> like, Ooh, if, uh, if you say that I'm special, yeah, sure. And so, yeah, I'm 18. I got a big head now and I go there and you know, I had a high first class PFT. I grew up in Florida swimming and stuff like that. So I was like, I got this right. Like how hard could this be? Brother, man, I drowned in that pool. I'm a good enough swimmer, but I swim like a manatee. They want dolphins in recon. <laughs> so, you know, everybody always um, thinks, you know, they're, you talk because I, I just, you know, you look at my, uh, you look on paper and I just, I just go from elite organization to elite organization. Uh, I must be <laughs> like a spectacular guy. Um there With a bone no, density 300% more dense than the average yeah, American. There is no way that I was passing the Force Recon NDOG um, as a private. The the, yeah. inf- the infantry was my stepping stone um, to to being successful there. So, like, um, you know, all the every, – and everything I did, I kept wondering why. I was like, why do I keep doing this to myself? So, you know, I, I'm in the School of Infantry after the National Guard, and we're doing all those – all those uh, ruck runs and, and marches out to the ranges. And I'm like, I can't live like this. These guys, <laughs> like every day, this is our life now. And then, you know, I got used to it. And uh, yeah. same thing, I got to, you know, Fort Story and I'm going through ARS. And I'm, I'm you know, basically doing ranger school and buds at the same time. Because, you know, that's one thing the Marine Corps loves is to one-up anybody else's POI. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm out there doing flutter kicks uh in the ocean in in freaking uh november and it's, for what reason <laughs> and i'm like yeah i'm like literally i can't breathe because the water is so cold i'm like why i can't do this if this is if this is what being a force recon marine is i i just can't um, yeah and i think that one it's one of the most shocking things that i i, I thought because when i you know, when I was going into to boot camp, I kind of had this perception that the Marine Corps was going to give you some sort of special potion and you were going to evolve into, you know, some sort of beast. And that just I mean, simply was not the case. Well, they do. And, you just don't notice it because it, 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 <laughs> that's the yeah, salt Peter they put in your food. <laughs> right. I, you know, I don't think I changed drastically, uh, you know, even after boot camp, you know, they taught me how to get dressed really well, but that's a, yeah. that's the most useful thing I brought to the table was I knew how to get my uniform on. Um, but four years later, um, coming out of a uh, first battalion, third Marines, that was a different person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. And I, I for as far as like the the three months of boot camp, like, uh, and this kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier is that if you have aspirations of joining the military or even going further with your career, whether you want to be, um, you know, uh, an air force, uh, pararescue, or you want to be a Navy diver, or you want to be a ranger, or you want to be force recon. Like you have to start preparing 
ahead of time. You're not going to show up to Marine Corps boot camp and three months later be in good enough shape to make an end doc or be in good enough shape to immediately do something. No, and so right. one of the biggest disservices that I feel my recruiter did for me is that like I wish I showed up to boot camp with like a barely passing runtime. I was doing like maybe seven pull ups. And like you said, four years later, you know, I was, um, you know, a, a much different person physically and mentally. But if you want to do those kind of things, like it does take time to build. And just because you don't achieve your goals right away when you're in your teens, your early 20s doesn't mean that they're not possible but it does take preparation leading up for it. Cause I remember being in the pool and just being just, just yeah. be beside myself with yeah, just like shock over and you're like, do yeah. And so like I'm sitting there and I remember a few, a few very like different thoughts going through my head. I was like, one, why are there khaki shorts so tight and so <laughs> short? Why, are, why is there so much man meat and so many butt cheeks just flapping everywhere from the instructors? I, um, two, all I these guys are way more jacked than I am. <laughs> This this looks super weird, man. I don't know what's going on here. And then you know, two years later, I'm that guy hanging out yeah. in my in my damn UDT shorts, uh, literally hanging out, <laughs> creeping everybody out. Yeah, like, hey, come on into the office, let me talk to you. And they're like, well, do you need to get dressed? I'm like, I am dressed. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is more than I usually wear. But uh, yeah, I just, yeah. Had, I just had a um, had a you know super motivated soldier. For, he's on his first enlistment, failed selection, man. Uh, you know, he, he works in our PAO office and he went to selection and he's all bummed out. Yeah. And, uh, and I never thought about it, but he's like, you know, he felt like he, he let everybody down because, you know, all the, all the GBs around him were helping him train up when they could. And, uh, and he, he was feeling like he, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't successful. And I was, you know, I was like, man, go back. Yeah. I was like, I can, you know, don't be, don't be confused because I'm sitting here wearing my, my green bray with all the, you know, free fall and dive badges. Like there is no way in hell I was passing selection as a private. Um, yeah. The fact that you went as a private was a cool opportunity and now you, you learned something. So go, you know, absolutely go back and try again now that you have been exposed uh, to that. And oh, I, sure. I, and I feel like a lot of guys, um, you know, go to those selections too early or not at the right time in their career. And then they carry some kind of like, I'm not worthy stone around. And uh, to me, it's just, you know, right, right time, right place. Um, this mid episode mental health break is brought to you by Telemine. Take a deep breath, unclench your jaw, relax your shoulders, and then head over to Telemine where you can link up with a national network of therapists and prescribers who provide TRICARE covered mental health services via secured video chat from the privacy of your own home. Check out Telemine.com. Now back to the episode. And, uh, and if you, uh, the biggest thing I hate them seeing is a guy coming to special forces who just barely makes it. Um, because you know, there, he was, a he was a top, top 10%, top 1% or wherever he came from. And I'll just use the infantry as an example. And he comes over here and he's just constantly frustrated, um, at his, his, um, weak performance as a, as a green beret, where as if he was in the infantry, you know, the guy would be a sergeant major, He'd be um, a long ball hitter. Yeah. Cause he's, he's, uh, he, that's his, that's his thing. That's what he's good at. And, uh, and then you'll see that same guy, you know, stuck at E7 as a Green Beret and uh, not really thriving. And uh, it, a lot of guys stay on teams forever because it's awesome. But I always think what a waste. Um, yeah. 
that you came here because you think that this organization is better than the one you came from, um, but you're not you're not serving at the, the highest level that you could be where which would be you know where you came from. I can see it, and they get frustrated because things aren't happening how they like them to happen uh, or how they're used to them happening, and uh, and I and I think that's a a pop culture thing where like if you're not a seal or, or a green beret, it's not you're not really serving, and uh, I'm like what an you know, only a child thinks that way. What an absurd thing to say. Yeah. Um, and you look at guys like Audie Murphy or Henry Johnson, you know, guys who are Audie Murphy late at wake at night. Cause he, he wasn't a green beret. <laughs> no, I promise you he did not. Yeah. And the you know, same thing with, you know, Henry Johnson and, and a bunch of other, you know, guys that you can point at and be like, you know, if that individual wasn't there at that point, would that conflict, would that battle, would that engagement have gone differently? Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, th- I think the, the healthiest, healthiest thing is, is, uh, define your own self-worth. And because if you're waiting for some valid external validation, I promise you, uh, we're not going to give it to you. Yeah. If, if you're, if you need somebody else to tell you that you're worth something like the green, putting a green beret or, uh, you know, gold, uh, bubble on your uniform, not going to yeah. fix it wrong. Um, and I think that's fair of anything, you know, like if you were, if you're a turd as a person, putting an EGA on your collar, isn't going to make you, you know, a it's good a person. It's in the right direction, but it it's, certainly yeah, it's, is. Not, uh, it's not going to fix everything. Yeah. It's not the Z pack that you're looking for to, yeah. to cure your iniquities. Yeah. Like I'm special. Why? That's why I, I have a really great thing that I, I use to keep um, green braids grounded. And uh, cause you know, they get, you got some egos floating around and they'll tell you I'm special. And I'm like, why are you special? And, and if they show me a piece of equipment, I'm like, okay, here, give it to me. Let me give it to this kid. Is he special now? Like, yeah. Uh, so you should never point to a tangible thing that de- defines why you're unique. It's you're, you should be special because, uh, things that you've learned, uh, people that you've mentored. Um, and, and that's where, that's where that value comes from for me. If yeah. you want to, if you want to tell me you're a special operator, I should be able to drop you off, uh, naked, uh, come back in a month and, and uh, all this change for for the better has happened. Yeah, that uh, that sounds quite like the opposite of uh, November in Las Vegas, where a lot of Marines find themselves naked after <laughs> after a very long night of drinking, and things well, are far their, worse in the morning. That's their, you know, that's their job, though. You got to keep up. <laughs> you got to keep up appearances and traditions. Yeah. So you know, what's next for for Master Sergeant Plumley then? I uh, I do not know. Um, I'm, I'm kind of uh, curtailing my military career. Uh, I think what's going to be next is I'm going to make up some time. Um, I've been gone for almost every birthday or anniversary uh, mm. for the past uh, 16 years, uh, 12 years of my, my daughter. She's my oldest. Um, I, I think uh, the big win for me is, um, you know, every day after school, she, she gets to ride home with me and, um, tell me about her problems while she's still willing to, cause, yeah. uh, here pretty soon, I, she's not going to share that stuff with me. So I want to, I want to be there and, um, be a dad, you know, Makes be a super sense. dad, probably going to overcompensate and drive him crazy. But that's, uh, my near term goal is to, is just to be, um, ever present as a father because, uh, the U S government has kind of stolen, uh, my, my family's, uh, <laughs> father figure for the past, uh, uh, 24 years. Right on. 
and so it's uh it's kind of it's kind of difficult for sometimes for for us uh, at the the twilight of our our careers to 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 understand the difference between like you know all right what's next for sergeant sharp and what's next for dan yeah you know what's next for sergeant sharp is i got to file my benefits i got to do this i got to take this class i you got to set this up but what's next for dan and it's just kind of like cricket you know you hang up your body armor you hang up your uh your kit you you turn in your rifle you downgrade your ammunition and you, yeah. you leave the supporting uh cast that you have and to me honestly that was that was scarier than a lot of the combat engagements that i had been in because that i had been prepared for that i had been trained for that i had done a bunch of times i'd never got out of the military before um uh, yes and I, I and i see guys do it all the time um so i've been very um aware um uh, you go you know you go especially guys that do 20 30 years and uh and and especially you know a, you're a green beret or you're a sergeant major or a colonel and that's like i i use the uh the batman batman you know batman <laughs> is batman his his uh alter ego is bruce yep. wayne and that that come becomes true over here it's such a big part of your life that you become master plumley uh operation sergeant for oda whatever and that's that's who you are and uh you, you know you transition out of the military and you know you become earl and if you start introducing yourself as you know well i used to be master Sergeant plumley you know green beret you're like that weirdo doesn't go over real great at the at the playground uh so you have to uh you have to find that uh that identity uh and that's you know that's kind of my recruiting pitch I give to, to kids. And it's a two edged sword is, uh, the, the military doesn't have jobs. It's a profession. It's yeah. a, you know, a profession of arms and, uh, we're not going to pay you a whole lot of money. So if you're expecting to get rich, you know, that's not what we have, but we, we have value and service, um, and, and, uh, the respect that comes with, with being a professional soldier. And it, and it does like, you know, you, you go to the airport, somebody finds out you're a Marine, they buy you a drink. Um, cause it's kind of homage that you are, uh, either you're serving now where I stood or you're, you're a better man than me. That's, that's what they're telling you. I could only imagine that conversation, but like, Hey, bartender, get this, uh, you know, get this, uh, this guy, you know, he was in the, the national guard, get him a, a beer. And you're like, Oh, actually I was a Marine too. And you're like, okay, make it a whiskey <laughs> while I was forced recon. All right. You know, and then you like higher shelf. And then I was a green beret. And then I won the medal of honor. It's like, all right, dude, just take my wallet. Like yeah. Johnny Walker blue for the whole bar. <laughs> That's my uh, actually. I'm uh, I love finding young Marines um, and and buying them a drink. It's it's my favorite thing to do. And yeah. rarely have they figured out who I was. So it's I always like to go in there and treat them like gold. Oh, that is insane! Because like at one point in time, like you know, maybe there's a, a young Marine who you bought a beer for, and he's watching this on on YouTube. Or, you know, maybe she's listening to this episode right now, and they just kind of connect the dots, and they're like, "Oh my god." Yeah, I do it all. I do it all the time. Uh, and my wife, you know, uh, she, she's been an army wife longer than uh, she was a Marine wife, but she's still, uh, there's something about that cult. Uh, she's got a, a special place in her heart for, for young Marines. And, uh, anytime we see one out there that, uh, is not doing good. She's, she treats them like little lost kittens and we'll, we'll gather them up, yeah. buy them a drink, get them to where they're supposed to be or, or figure it out for them. Put them next to the baby possums that you rescued. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's uh it's it's so 
it's so hard to kind of set things down as you're as you're leaving. Um, you know, particularly when you were in a very specialized um, specialized field, or you had a very specialized purpose, where you like your entire life was dedicated to something. And uh, recently, a few episodes ago, we had uh, Garrett Jones on the podcast again. He's a you know best-selling author and the the co-author of the movie uh, MVP. Uh, y'all can find that on Amazon. Shameless plug. Uh, but the premise of that movie was that um, there were athletes who were transitioning out of uh, you know the NFL or their various respective leagues, and they were having a hard time because you know you spend your whole middle school, high school, college twenties and thirties, you know putting on pads, doing drills, uh, studying plays, watching film. And then when your career is over, it's it's kind of hard to adjust to a life outside of that. And they found that there was a lot of kinship between that experience and people separating from the military. So the premise of the MVP program was that they were having athletes and military uh, veterans work out together, share stories and, and um, experience some camaraderie. And I, I found that to be very true. And especially in my case where you know, I got out of the military and I felt like I went into the role of commentator, right? Like I am no longer on the field, but I am in the side booth right. with the microphone and the headset giving my thoughts and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, contribute uh, to the community in that regard. And I feel like that's really important because so many of our combat veterans got out and all the experience, all the lessons learned the hard way, they got taken with them. And so we're actually working on a book uh, to chronicle a lot of our uh, experiences in combat to give as a present to the next generation Be like you know we i can't physically lead you in combat anymore but i can give you this experience that maybe you can read this while you're on duty or while you're waiting for transpo to show up or put a, a headphone in and listen to this podcast you know while you're you know waiting for you know to to get secured from from work or whatever the case is and i can give you some sort of guidance you know i can give you this gift of experience and uh, the lessons that I learned the hard way and that my guests and my friends learned the hard way. So that way you don't have to make the same mistakes. So that way you can have a, a more successful career. Cause at the end of the day, if we're not leaving things better for the next generation, then what are we doing? Nothing. If, if that's not what you're doing, it's, it's a waste of time. Exactly. And so, you know, that being said, um, we, we talked, um, in our pre-interview that, uh, there are some uh, some charitable efforts that you have found yourself aligned with as a way to kind of give back to the community. Would you, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? That's what, you know, there's a, there's a ton of great organizations out there. And, and uh, um, now, you know, my, my problem now is, you know, everybody wants, wants me to come in and support them. And, and so I had to be careful. And um, so I just picked a couple and uh, the one I like um is a unquiet professional. Uh, it was started after a, a friend of mine uh, who, who was killed in Afghanistan, uh, Mike Simpson, and it, his wife runs it. And uh, her her big thing was uh, she can't fix everything, and I think that's that's the most uh, uh, humble approach you can take to to doing the like a nonprofit type service. You can't fix everything. Find something and focus on it. So she just came in and and uh, wrote a very broad charter for for what her organization was going to do. And it's the things that nobody else wants to do, and yeah. uh, and so you know, I think her her very first thing was when you're flying to to get your husband's uh, remains, uh, you 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 shouldn't fly economy. You should you know you should fly first class. Um, if you've got some kind of you know no, nobody's mowing the yard, well somebody's going to mow the yard. And uh, 
so she just takes on any kind of unique challenges um, for those families who've, who've lost a, a loved one in service to the country. And it's things that, you know, the U.S. government just can't or won't do. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, I think she's got like a very uh, SF approach to, to it. You know, she's like, yeah, because you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to compete with, with uh, the, the Marine infantry, right? Like that's, they've got that nailed down. Don't do that job. And so a lot of these big organizations um, are fixing like big long-term problems. And so she's like, I'm going to be the super nimble uh, person on the ground that, that uh, will get after these unique problems. And, uh, and it's, you know, a lot of them are absurd. uh, And, and I have a, unfortunately I have quite a bit experience during dealing with widows and, and, you know, my thing is, they're like, well, she's acting crazy. Like, well, she's a crazy person. Uh, (laughs) And I, I was like, anytime you're dealing with a, a widow for 24 months, just assume that you're not dealing with a rational person that's, that's thinking clearly. And, uh, um, if, if this is a big deal to them, that's an easy fix. Like let's, yeah. let's clear, let's clear these s- small distractions out of the, out of the, uh, air so that we can deal with real problems. Yeah. And you were telling me about how it was kind of a surreal experience for her. You know, you get the worst news possible. Um, and then you got to fly economy sandwiched in between two people and then you get there and you got to hail a cab and you got to, you and know, you go through it. You know, yeah. And you get your kids and, uh, and you, you got to take a cab to the base and, you know, deal with uh, the base uh, ID guest pass at Dover and all yep. that kind of stuff. And so the, the unquiet professional, you can find them online at the unquiet professional.org. Uh, but they do things like that where they will pay for the flight and then hire a driver who has already gotten all the base passes necessary. So they can just be waved on and yeah. they don't have to go through all those things. And just kind of like, just like little, little patches and, and potholes to make the, you know, one of the worst um, times of your life, just a little bit smoother. Just, just making it, um, I don't know. I don't want to say normal, making it just taking the stress out of it. And, uh, and the other, you know, the other thing that, that's a, a big deal for her is, uh, you're swimming in people that want to help you for the first, um, six months or a mm-hmm. year. You know, every, everybody wants to come and, and cook and clean the house, uh, and help you manage that. And then, but what does that look like two, three years later, you know? Yeah. Um, what happens when the, uh, the picture and the flag case on the mantle starts to get a little dust on it? Yep. Are you still having, um, are you still, are you doing good? Did you move on? And, and, uh, so, you know, the DOD is great, um, taking care of you for, for that period of time, but, you know, down the road, um, you know, we, we just, uh, we don't or can't, um, you know, you need to live, you know, start living your life again. And, uh, Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's hard. Yeah. And it was one of the things that you mentioned that we could have done better in the GWAT is being more cognizant of what the long-term impacts of our, our armed conflicts are going to be. And, you know, part of that is the, the families that are, are left behind. So if you'd like to support the unquiet professional, uh, you can check them out online. And, you know, like you said, there are, there are a ton of organizations and, you know, nobody can give everything to everyone so like we were saying earlier with your specialized, like if you have the time, maybe you're feeling a little bit derived of purpose. Maybe, you know, you miss the camaraderie, whatever the case is, find an organization and, you know, give what you can, whether that's 15 minutes a week to help with data processing or receipts or whatever the case is. And 
everyone gets busy. Everybody has stuff going on. So, you know, don't, don't feel bad if you can't, but just know that there are people out there that would appreciate the help. And if you can, then help out a little bit. If not, then just improve your position until you can. Yeah. Always improve your position. Yeah. And that is one of the most important lessons that the, uh, the military taught me because you can, uh, be in a bad position and you have two choices. You can either accept it or you can work against it. And despite your best efforts, things may still go poorly, but sometimes they won't. And sometimes that little bit of effort that you put into something will be all the difference. I think it, I think it's, I think it's very important to go down swinging. Um, yeah. Cause then it, just, you know, especially in life and then, you know, it just, it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, you know, that you hear it all the time, you know, no regrets, but I think, <laughs> People that uh, if you didn't try hard at something that you kind of cared about and then it it uh, turned in, you know, fell apart, whether that be financially, your marriage or your career, um, you know, down the road, that's those you can't take those things back. And it seems to really hang around people's necks. And it's luckily for me, it's something I noticed as a younger man. So mm. uh, I, I just started throwing myself wildly into to every endeavor. Um, so if it didn't work, I don't have to. Uh, you know, lay around and wish I had tried harder. I already know that I went all in and it just wasn't, it wasn't the thing that I was going to be good at. Yeah. And anybody who's ever done any land nav um, has <laughs> probably at one point in time shot a bum azimuth, didn't incorporate the GM angle, yep. uh, like done something right. Found some sort of obstacle that they had a 90 degree offset around. And it's like, you know, you can't take back all those steps, but you know, what you can do is resection intersection, shoot a new azimuth and march on. Swing, yeah, swing it. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> well, where can we find you online? Uh, where can you find me online? O almost nowhere. Uh, <laughs> Truly a quiet professional. Yeah, well, I'm I'm still getting used to uh, to that and uh, and how to manage it. You know, uh, yeah. I had to I had to I had to disconnect my phone. I had the same phone number since I was uh, um, an E5 in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, the day I went to the white house, the phone just became completely unusable because yeah. you know, there were calls coming in, texts coming in and, and, uh, and honestly, I, um, I have just, I've never been a big online guy. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're in the room with me, you know, let's get after it. Yeah. And if you're not, then I, I just, I have no use for you. Um, and I don't see what, you know, why your opinion would matter. So I, I guess I'm kind of a dinosaur. Um, my well, wife yeah. joked, you know, I, I, I come off as this, uh, this, uh, you know, solitude of, for, of silence type uh, online presence. But yeah, my house, you know, my kids have, you know, 20 uh, uncles because uh, anybody I've served with is just, you know, always over here getting into some kind of shenanigans. But no, I haven't really figured out the online thing at all, man. Well, uh, if you need any help with that, I know a guy. You do? I'll have to hit you up because uh, I took I did some small endeavors. You know, I set up an Instagram and yeah, and uh, it's just a it's a disaster. The uh, the uh, you know the advice I get like oh you got to post daily and post a picture and I'm like ah I just yeah. <laughs> I don't have the energy for it. Um, and uh, which you know I have a, a friend uh, Ricky Francilio. Uh, we're in the Marine Corps together, and he's like it's a shame. Because you you have one one of the most interesting lives, uh, but you you know you don't you don't care to share it. I'm like, well, that's probably why I have such an interesting life. Fair. 
And I think social media puts a lot of pressure on, on somebody to always be having a good day. That makes a lot of sense. And it's one of our missions to kind of like put it out there that, you know, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to seek help. Uh, what it's not okay to do is just to give up on yourself. Yeah. And, you know, so before we, before we let you get out of here, you know, as you mentioned, you're, you're wrapping your career up and I know this might be a, a big ass, but you know, what do you, what do you wish you could have told, um, a 17, 18 year old version of yourself, you know, when they're first raising their, their right hand, go back to that young man and just give him one piece of advice. What would you say? Don't marry, um, <laughs> super wealthy Japanese women after your first deployment. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, uh, there you have it. <laughs> Earl, thank you so much for uh, for your time and and for your for your insight. Uh, we we thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll we'll definitely have to to have you back. And just remember, if uh, if you're ever a, a young marine out at an airport bar or perhaps at a, a local Chili's, and you you see a man with a twinkle in his eye buying you a beer, just know that it might be Medal of Honor recipient Master Sergeant Earl Promley. <laughs> I hope it is. I hope it is too. Well, thank you, my friend. Fair winds following seas. We'll see you next time here in the smoke pit. Good luck.